I think it was back in my grand, grandpa's generation, there was a guy by the name of Marcus that immigrated from Greece to Cambridge, Pennsylvania, and he was thrilled to become a citizen of the United States, but he did not know a word of English. And uh, yet he found some friends who spoke Greek, and especially a lady by the name of Alexandra was very, very helpful. She showed him around the city and introduced him to some of her Greek-speaking uh, friends as well as to some of the English-speaking friends. Uh, one time, after uh, having been introduced to quite a number of people, she took him to a businessman friend, she said, and uh, wanted him to meet this guy, and he didn't understand what was going on, but he was nodding attentively, and he got a little bit nervous when the guy started asking him questions, but with prodding and uh, coaxing from Alexandra, he said, uh, yes, and I do at the proper places little realizing that this was a justice of the peace and he was now a married man. In fact, even after the ceremony, he didn't realize he was married until police showed up at his doorstep and arrested him for desertion and non-support. And he was dumbfounded. What do you mean? I'm not married. And it took a long time to get this all cleared up. But uh, he realized the hard way that there are life-changing implications to being married. <laughs> that's what Paul is saying in uh, this passage here, uh, Paul is saying that there are life-changing implications to being united with Christ. Now, unlike Marcus, we know we have new life, right? We know that uh, we are uh, in Christ. But uh, I want you to look at chapter 2 and verse 20, where Paul begins to talk about the profound changes that our union with Christ and His death and resurrection bring us into. Chapter 2, verse 20, he says, Therefore, if you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, why, as though living in the world, do you subject yourselves to regulations, etc.? He was saying, leave your old life. Let it be buried. Get on with your life with Christ. If we were to use the analogy of uh, marriage again, he's basically saying, hey, I want your life to revolve around your husband or around your wife. I don't want you living like a bachelor. I don't want you going out and dating other people. I don't want you spreading your dirty laundry all over the living room like you used to do. I don't want you eating out of the pot. You know, act like you're married. You've got to be uh, living consistent with your uh, present uh, state. Christ's resurrection has profound implications in the way in which we live. And I want to divide uh, this whole passage up into three parts, three implications of the resurrection. First one, beginning at chapter 3, verse 1. If then you were raised with Christ. If then you were raised with Christ. Now, by using the word if, he's not, and not denying the fact that they have been raised with Christ. There are two kinds of if in the Greek, actually in, in the English as well. There is the if of uncertainty. It would be like saying, okay, if it rains tomorrow, uh, we're not going to have a picnic. You don't know if it's going to rain tomorrow or not, but uh, uh, just in case you're making that as a, as a condition. Uh, that's not the kind of if that is being used here. The second kind of if is the if of logical deduction. If this is true, then this is the implication. Okay? Uh, some people call it the if of certainty. It would be sort of like saying, if you're a man, then act like a man. Right? Or if you're 19 years old, you ought to start acting 19 years old. Uh, he's not denying the fact that the person is a man or that he's 19 years old. What it's saying is, based on the certainty of the fact you are a man, you are 19 years old, you need to start living consistently with that fact. That's the kind of if that is being used uh, in this passage here. Uh, in fact, some translations translate it this way. Since you were raised with Christ... And then it goes on to talk about the, the implications. So it's the, the if of logical deduction or the if of certainty. Now, what does it mean that we have been raised with Christ? That may seem kind of mysterious to us. How could we have been raised with Christ 2,000 years ago when we weren't even in existence at that time? And there have been some who have tried to explain this because it just didn't make any sense. Well, this must be talking about our spiritual regeneration. And there is an element of truth, not from this passage, but from other ones, that our 
regeneration is spoken of as a resurrection of our dead spirits to life. And Christ's resurrection guaranteed our spirits would be raised and our bodies would be raised in the future. That's not what this is talking about. I want you to notice the words there, with Christ. Christ is raised and we're raised with Christ. So this is talking about a resurrection 2,000 years ago and it's saying we were raised when Christ was raised. Something happened 2,000 years ago. What in the world would that be? Well, I think most of you are already familiar with the exchange uh, that took place in terms of Christ's death. In fact, I want you to turn back again to chapter 2, verse 20, and we'll just read that again. He says, Therefore, if you died with Christ, if you died with Christ, if we can understand that exchange, I think we'll better understand the first legal exchange that happened with regard to the resurrection. Why did uh, we need to die in the first place? And why did Christ have to die as our substitute, to die in our place? Well, the answer is that we have sinned against God in thought, in word, in deed. Uh, we've not only thought, uh, thought sins against Him, but we've expressed sins against God and against mankind. And we've done it in so many different ways. Even our motives can be sinful. And uh, Scripture indicates that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin is death. There are many people down through history who have really belittled sin, and they thought, oh, well, that doesn't really require a death. In fact, uh, their view of the atonement is that it was just a moral example that uh, we are to emulate, uh, being this kind of sacrificial, but God could have uh, saved us without the death of Christ. But Scripture indicates that is absolutely not true. A death was absolutely uh, required. Anyway, these guys, they think that our good deeds can outweigh our bad deeds. Oh, sure, I've done a lot of bad things, but I've done far more good things, and if you weigh them all out, my good deeds will outweigh the bad deeds. That would be about as stupid as inviting you over to my house, and I'm cracking eggs to make an omelet, and I've got 11 eggs, and oops, uh, this one's a rotten, green, smelly egg that went in there, and I'm thinking, oh, well. The good eggs will outweigh the bad eggs, and I whip it up and cook it and give it to you. No, the whole thing becomes stinky, right? It, it's just unfit to offer up. And that's what Scripture says. It says, all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. Now, God is not denying the fact that unbelievers do good things. But He's saying, even the righteousnesses you do are as filthy rags. They're stinky. You cannot offer them up to God. He will not receive them. If this... Um, this book here represented all of the sins that I've ever committed. It would have to be a much thicker book uh, than this and much uh, wider than this because, again, remember, it's not just the outward acts that we do. It's the sins of omission where God's commanded us to do things and we just haven't done them. It's our thoughts, our motives. There's many ways in which we have sinned against God. And when God looks at us, those sins make us utterly unfit for heaven and unfit for Him to even be in fellowship with. In fact, the Scripture says we are an abomination in His sight. He cannot stand the sight of us. Those sins are an offense to Him. In fact, it says in, in uh, uh, Psalm 5, verse 5, you hate all workers of iniquity. All workers of iniquity. God hates not only the sin, he hates the sinner because the sin is bound to that sinner. He despises that sinner. So how could God love anyone? How could he have fellowship with anyone? Scripture indicates God would become an unjust judge and he would become unholy himself if he embraced us to himself without dealing with our sin. He would become unholy. So how does God save anyone? How can he love anyone? How can he redeem him? And this is, this is where the beautiful doctrine comes in of exchange life that I think so many, so many of you are familiar with but we need to be reminded of from time to time. If that hand represents me, this hand represents Jesus, it indicates that God the Son came down, took upon Himself a human nature so that He was fully God, fully man, to represent God to us, to represent us to God, he lived a perfect life and He died in our place. And Scripture says in Isaiah, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to His own way. But the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. Christ willingly took 
our sins, He willingly suffered God's wrath, the hellfire of separation from God, and a physical death and a spiritual death in our place. And in turn, He gave to us His righteousness so that God can look at us and say, you know, Phil Kaiser is righteous in Christ. I can embrace Him to myself. I can love Him. That is the beauty of the exchange death that uh, chapter 2 and verse 20 is uh, talking about. But the point of chapter 3 is it's not just Christ's death that was exchanged for believers. It's not just when we cast our sins on Him and we say, Lord, I receive Your righteousness for myself. That's a, that's a great uh, a part of the doctrine but there was also an exchange that legally took place 2,000 years ago with regard to uh, His resurrection. Um, we're not just treated as having legally died before the courtroom when Christ died, so our penalty is paid. We are treated as legally having been raised from the dead so that He can give us uh, his new life and all of the benefits of life. There had to be a legal basis for Christ to give us new life and to live His life through us. Now, man died both spiritually and physically as a result of Adam's sin, and Christ's resurrection then formed the basis for giving us new life spiritually as well as at the end of history physically. 1 Corinthians 15, 16 through 17 says this, For if the dead do not rise then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Without the resurrection, he says, you are still in your sins. Okay? His resurrection was critical for giving us new life. It's, um, you could think of it this way. His death kept us from having to die eternally in hell okay, as a substitute. But his life gives us the legal basis to have new life. Okay, both of those uh, are needed. Romans 5, verse 10 refers to both exchanges. It says, For if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. And so Christ's resurrection, our life, have to be bound uh, together. Um, and we're going to be seeing there's more implications. When you, the Satan accuses you, you look back to your... Uh, the, the transfer, that exchange of life and saying, it doesn't matter how bad I am, all my badness was on Christ. And that exchange took place. Now, what we're going to do under point two, and this is where we're going to spend most of our time here, is I want to show how this exchanged life was not only a legal action in the past. That's, it says, if we were raised with Christ, okay, He's our substitute, but it's also an ongoing reality Right now, once a person places his faith in Christ, there's an ongoing exchange that takes place. So let's read that verse again. If then you were raised with Christ, that's the past tense, right? That's already happened. That is not a command. It couldn't possibly be a command. It's a fact. It's accomplished. You just believe in it. You receive it, okay? It's something you don't work at. But then the next words are commands and they relate to the present, not the past tense. So it says, if you were raised with Christ, that's the past, now... Seek those things which are above where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth, for you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. The police were not telling Marcus that he needed to get married. What they were telling Marcus is, hey, you're married and you need to take your marriage responsibilities here seriously, as well as your marriage... Um, uh, uh, benefits, but you need to act consistently with your marriage. Now, unlike Marcus, we know that we have new life, but many times we live inconsistently with that fact. We fail to live by the power of the indwelling risen Christ within us. Now, because these verses have been so often misinterpreted, uh, I want to spend a little bit of time telling you what they do not mean. First of all, they do not mean that we're supposed to spend uh, all day in prayer and meditation and uh, not in the sticky, grindy work that's out there bringing in an income. Uh, that is absolutely not uh, the, the truth. 
What he's talking about here is something related to the whole of our lives 24-7. Okay? Now, this faulty interpretation says, okay, we need to meditate upon heaven, uh, our life in the future, uh, non-physical things, because if you meditate on physical things like diapers and marriage and cars and all of that kind of stuff, it's going to pull you away from your spiritual walk with God. This is known as, as pietism. And if consistently held, you would have to go off to a monastery and just spend your whole time meditating. But even in the monastery, you're not going to be able to be consistently living this because you've got to eat and clean the monastery. There's lots of drudgerous things you've got to do there. So... This interpretation advocates an escape from the world rather than a conquest of the world. And those are two quite different things. I want you to notice that Paul gives his own interpretation of what he means by the phrase things above and the things on the earth. Now, I've underlined these two phrases. In verse 2, there's a phrase there, uh, things on the earth. And that's identical in the Greek to the phrase in verse 5, which are on the earth. So verse 5 is going to be giving his interpretation what he means by the things which um, are on the earth. It says literally, therefore put to death your members the things which are on the earth. What are those things? Are they things like marriage, cars, family, and friends? Are we supposed to put to death our, our relatives and our cars and houses? That's not what he's saying. Not at all. Uh, no, he is, he is saying we need to be putting to death our independent living that our flesh is constantly pulling us into. Let's read verses 5 through 10. Therefore, put to death your members the things which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience, in which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them. But now you yourselves are to put off all these, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you have put off the old man with his deeds and have put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. So the things on this earth, that's independent living that flows from the old Adam. The things which are above is the dependent living that flows from the new Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ, sometimes called the, the new man. Just as there was an exchange that happened 2,000 years ago legally, there was a practical exchange that's going on right now where the new man is being exchanged for the old man. By the way, the term man and Adam are synonyms. Okay, that's, You could just translate Adam as man. It's the Aramaic word for uh, for man, And so the old man is our old identity with Adam. The new man is our new identity with Jesus Christ. And we're to exchange his life for our old life. Just look at some of the phrases there that we're to put off and to put on. Verse 5, put to death the things on the earth. Verse 8, put off sin. Verse 9, put off the old man. And in exchange for that, verse 9 says, put on the new man. Verse 12, put on tender mercies, kindness, etc. And then as you keep reading all the way through chapter 4, verse 6, he's telling us we need to be exchanging the old life for the new life in every endeavor, whether it's marriage, family, your business relationships, and everything, put off the old, put on the new. So both, of those th both the things below and the things above deal with issues like cars and houses and spouses and children, but it's two totally different ways. So this is not escapism. This is transformation of everything on planet Earth. Now, in what way is fornication a thing on the Earth and a godly marriage relationship is a thing that we receive from heaven? I mean, they're both physical things. You can't say one's non-physical, the other's physical. They're both physical things uh, that, that you are relating to but it's the contrast that he is drawing between the natural life and the supernatural life right here on terra firma. Paul does not want us to be so heavenly minded in the, in the sense of escaping from this world and thinking about our future bliss in heaven that we're of no earthly good. Instead, in fact, if he, he did that, 
he would be contradicting himself in the rest of this book because he deliberately tells us not to be escaping this world, to be transforming this world. So he's not saying, be so heavenly minded you're of no earthly good. Instead, he says, I want you to be so heavenly minded in the sense now that I'm receiving my life from Christ, my resources from Christ, that everything I do here on earth is going to be transformed. Basically, he's praying, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Why don't you turn with me to Galatians. It's earlier, a couple books. Galatians chapter 2 and verses 19 through 20 because this is a parallel verse that helps to explain what it means to be seeking those things which are above. Galatians 2, 19 through 20. For I, through the law... Uh, he's going to first talk about a legal exchange. This is in the realm of law. For I, through the law, died to the law that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. That's all in the past tense. And that's all dealing with the, the exchange life under point number one, 2,000 years ago. But now he says, it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me in the life which I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. This is the genius of the exchanged life in terms of sanctification. When Colossians 3 through 4 tells us, hey, I want you to live as godly husbands and wives and children and, and parents and employers and employees. I want you to live godly in that. He's not saying you'd need to do it in your own strength. Uh, no. Uh, he is saying that we need to be looking to the Lord for our resources, looking to Him for wisdom and for power and for everything that we need to do those things to His glory. We can no more live the Christian life in our own strength than we could get saved in the first place in our own strength. See, it's not just justification that is by faith. Our sanctification the transformation of our minds, uh, the renewed dominion mandate is also by faith. It has to be received from the Lord. Christ provides everything for us and everything He provides is utterly practical. Now, don't get me wrong. He is not opposed to effort. James says faith without works is dead. But the question is, where is your energy coming from? Where is your working coming from? Is it coming from strength you receive from the old Adam? Or is it coming from the new Adam? That's the kind of contrast he's trying to get you to think about. Now, it's very easy for Christians to fool themselves into thinking that they are living as Christians should. Now, some are even fooled as to whether they are Christians uh, because they have a form of godliness, but they deny the power thereof. Uh, outwardly, uh, there's a Christianity, they don't have the power of Christ. Let me just illustrate that. Just picture that you've gone to a party and there's uh, great music playing and people are having a, a good time uh, talking with each other and listening to the music and there's this one guy there who's really getting into the music and he's snapping his fingers and tapping his foot and he's swaying and he's really enjoying this. He's getting down a lot more than I can even pretend to get down. <laughs> and, um, you know, there's a deaf person there. He comes into the room and he says, wow, this guy's having a lot of fun. I want to be fulfilled like this guy. So, you know, he sits down beside this guy and he's watching. Okay, this guy's tapping his foot. So he taps his foot and he, he snaps his fingers too, but he's definitely not doing it in rhythm with the music. And he tries to, to move a little bit like this guy, you know, and uh, it's uh, not quite coming off. Well, anybody who comes into that room, he can look at those two people and he can say, ah, because he's hearing the music. He can say, I know this person's just outward conformity. He can't hear the music. It's not coming from within. Okay? This is the difference. Sometimes it's so subtle because outwardly the conformity can look so, uh, so close. Unfortunately... Some people are Christians by going through all of the actions, but they're still deaf. They're still blind. God has not given them this spiritual insight. They're living the Christian life by the power of the first Adam, not by the power of Jesus. Now, they want a fulfilled life. They want one. So they try to be a Christian. They go to all the meetings. They uh, learn doctrine. They pray. But they don't have the life. They don't have that within. They're dry spiritually. In fact... 
they're, they're very frustrated many times. They've tried to be spiritual and they've tried to have this joy and they've tried to have this fulfillment so many times and failed so many times that finally they either come to the conclusion, well, I need to pretend, and they, they're snapping their fingers and trying to do exactly what other Christians do, or they say, this is all hypocrisy, I'm giving it up. I can't do this any, uh, anymore. And what they've missed is that there is an exchange of life. We can't do it in ourselves. We cannot do it in ourselves. It misses the point of verse 4 where he says, Christ is our life. He is our life. It's not just He adds to our life. He is our life. Hendrickson comments that this means that Christ is the source and pattern for our lives. He not only tells us what to do, but He gives us the life to live it by. Okay, all Christians realize that salvation is by grace alone, but too many Christians try to live the Christian life as if it was up to them, and, and they just feel dry and empty and spiritually uh, uh, just alone. They, they just have a very discouraging Christianity. They're Christians, many of them are anyway, but they are not experiencing the second point of the exchanged life. What Paul is saying is that grace is not just a legal exchange that occurred 2,000 years ago that we receive in justification. That is an awesome gift. That is a wonderful blessing. But he's also saying that it's an ongoing, exchanged life day by day. Now, because some people lack that spiritual power, they lack the joy of the Holy Spirit and the other fruit of the Spirit that... Uh, uh, Elder Gary Duff has been talking about. They can't overcome Satan. They don't have the power to pray for healing or other things like that. Because of that, what they do is they say, okay, in order to cope with life, they say, forget about this power. I haven't had it. My friends don't have it. Let's focus back on the exchange that happened 2,000 years ago. And these people have actually benefited from this because it's a part of the truth and truth always helps you. So when you look back at justification, it helps you to deal with the accusations of the evil one. It helps you to deal with legalism. It helps you to realize, look, I'm secure in the Lord Jesus Christ. It is an incredible blessing, but that's missing out on point number two. It's missing out on so much more. So um, point number one the first half of that story, or third, I guess it would be, grace includes the wonderful doctrines of justification, adoption, incredible legal exchange that happened, but it also continues with the doctrine of sanctification and the personal exchange that's supposed to be going on 24-7. 2 Peter 1.3 says, His divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. In fact, I highly recommend you just read Second Peter chapter one and study that, because that is a passage that that uh, talks about how we sometimes forget and become nearsighted and barren and empty, even though we're Christians. And it says it's almost a blindness. You can drift so far away from the Lord that it's almost like blindness. And he's saying, you've missed out on the whole of this second point that we are talking about. His divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. And Second Peter chapter 1 gives a whole bunch of steps of how you enter into that and be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of the Lord. Anyway, uh, we have to ask, are we receiving that? Christ said, He came that we might have life and that we might have it more abundantly. More abundantly. And so our goal in life is to pursue Christ and His power, His resources, and to not be satisfied until uh, we find it. Paul said on one occasion, but we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. We are hard-pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed always carrying about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. He's calling us uh, to live in terms of the power of Christ. Let me repeat that last phrase. That the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. And that's what I want for every one of you. 
not just justification. That is a glorious thing for a criminal who knows he's going to be fried to hear the words, not guilty. That is wonderful. But what about the rest of that person's life? We need to be concerned about the rest of that person's life as well. It's Christ living in me. The thing that made Paul able to face incredible adversity was this doctrine of the exchanged life. And when you read through Romans 8, 31 through 39, uh, it gives you a totally new perspective when you look at it through the lens of the exchanged life. Let me just read one of the verses there. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. Now perhaps you feel like less than a conqueror. And it may be because you're trying to live the Christian life in the power that flows from the first Adam. That's the default, you know. Uh, that's something that automatically happens. We Christians tend to fall, find ourselves falling into the default of operating in our own arm of flesh, what the old Adam can do. Or, and these are the only two options we have, live your life in the old Adam, live your life in the power of the new Adam. That is not by default. That's walking by faith. That's receiving something that's outside of ourselves. And so ask yourself this question. Do you live most of your day and go through most of your work without any sense of need for the Lord Jesus Christ in your lives? If so, it's guaranteed you have been seeking those things which are below. You're focused, you're set, your mind is set on the things on the earth. You're living independently. Do you do the dishes just because they need to be done? Or do you do them for and through and by the Lord Jesus Christ? That's the difference that Colossians is driving at. One of the things that revolutionized my life was in 12th grade. And I don't know if that's the time when I was uh, regenerate or if that's just the time God opened my eyes to understand the second point uh, here. But I began to have a constant awareness of God's presence and power in my life. Now, prior to that time, if you had talked to me about what I'm talking to you this morning, it would have been, I would have been clueless. Like, I don't really understand what you're talking about. Because it just, the doctrine I can understand, but experiencing it, that was an entirely different thing. Uh, I was sort of like the deaf man that was pretending to enjoy the music. Okay? Outwardly, I had a lot of conformity, but I lacked the power thereof. Okay, I had uh, either not gotten spiritual ears or had failed to learn how to use those spiritual ears. But after that time, it was almost like it was an attitude of prayer, even though prayers were not always verbalized. I began to talk to God very naturally about all of the things that that I was doing moment by moment, or when I was not talking, I still had the sense, God is in this room with me. And He, he cares for me. And His smile of approval is on. I mean, I could sense the Lord's presence with me. And my goal and desire in life was to please Him. And everything I was doing, I wasn't doing for my boss. I was doing for the Lord Jesus. There was lots of corners I could have cut at work. And uh, sometimes I, I realized afterwards, it's a good thing I'm doing this to please the Lord because I was a janitor at this, uh, when that all happened. And I remember thinking, you know, nobody's been in this room today. I could just cut corners by not uh, mopping the floor. I said, no, I'm doing this for you, Lord, whether it needs it or not. This is a service for you. And lift up the, the garbage can to mop underneath it. Whoa, a little piece of paper stuck under there. Ah, my boss is checking to see if I'm mopping or not. But it didn't matter because I wasn't doing it for my boss. I was doing it uh, for the Lord. Anyway, that when I go on rabbit trails, I lose track of where I was at. Um, oh, yes. Coram Deo. This is what Calvin said was living Coram Deo. Coram Deo, beautiful name. There's a church named that. I love that name. Um, but anyway, it means living before the face of God. He said this should be the goal that we have in life. There's never a time where we are not living quorum Deo. Wherever there is faith, faith, there is an awareness of God's presence. And whatever is not of faith is sin, according to Romans 14, verse 23. Hebrews says without faith it's impossible to please God. Let me, let me say that again. Wherever there is faith, there is an awareness of God's presence. 
And whatever is not of faith is sin, according to Romans 14.23. And Hebrews says, without faith we cannot please God. This is why in my leadership training I keep emphasizing over and over again intimacy with Christ. Uh, People uh, might sometimes wonder why I, I spend so much time on that, but it's because I don't want people, I don't want any of you to be like that deaf man who's doing all of the right things but not because there's any life or power within. Paul said, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Now, here's an evaluation question that uh, you can ask yourselves. Does your 40-hour-a-week job pull you away from Christ? Because it need not. Jesus was a carpenter for 30 years of his life. There is nothing unspiritual about being a carpenter. Uh, You don't have to go off to a monastery to live like Christ. In fact, you won't be living like Christ because Christ did not go off to a monastery, did he? Uh, You can be a carpenter and be as spiritual as the Lord Jesus Christ was. Carpentry is not one of the things on the earth that Paul is saying, get rid of that because you're not going to be spiritual if you're engaged in that. Not at all. But here is the point. Some carpenters don't live like Jesus did. Here's what Jesus said. The Son can do nothing by Himself. Rather, it is the Father living in Me who is doing the work. Why does 1 Thessalonians 5.17 say we should be uh, in prayer without ceasing? You know, kind of an attitude of prayer. Because... Paul knows there should never be a time in the day when we do not sense our dependence upon God. Christ told His disciples, without me, you can do nothing. Everything that is done in our own strength that flows from the old Adam will be burned up as hay, wood, and stubble. Everything. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only what's done for, through, and by Christ and to God's glory Uh, will last and praise God we can do the dishes and landscaping and roof removal and filling candy machines to the glory of God. All of it can be done as a service to Him. When we take our eyes off of Christ, then immediately the issues of jobs and diapers and dishes flow from the old man. That's just the default. And when our eyes of faith are on Christ, exactly the same issues become the fruit of Christ. He said, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. See, the only way we can do anything that is pleasing to God is if Jesus is doing it through us. Everything that flows from the old man is rubbish. God's going to sweep it aside on judgment day. The doctrine of the resurrection means we have to do with a living Savior who indwells us and wants us to experience His life more abundant. And so when Colossians 3 says, Seek those things which are above where Christ is. Set your mind on things above, not on the earth. What Paul is calling us to do is to have a continual attitude of dependence. Continual attitude of dependence. You need to be brought to the place where you can do the dishes and clean the garage and witness to your neighbors with these words in you. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. Now, if this is all mysterious to you and you just think, wow, this is just... I don't even understand where you're coming from. Ask God to open your eyes because really you are missing out on a lot. Ask God to open your eyes so that you can enter into the exciting exchange of life that's available moment by moment. God does not want you to limp and struggle through the Christian life. Here's what Galatians 3.3 says. Are you so foolish, having begun in the Spirit, are you now being made perfect by the flesh? Now here's how you could paraphrase it. Are you so foolish, having begun by God's grace in point number one, Are you now trying to do point number two in your own flesh, in your own strength through the old man? That's exactly what he's saying. The first one must come from the new Adam. The second point must come from from the new Adam as well.
Our flesh, our old man, is not capable of living the new life in Christ. All it can do is the imitation of the deaf man who's clicking his fingers and imitating something he has never personally experienced. But when the Spirit indwells us, here's what Ephesians 1.19 says, that we experience what is the exceeding greatness of His power toward us who believe, according to the working of His mighty power, which He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places. He is saying the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is available to be at work in your body, in your soul, right now. And that in no way conflicts with effort. Some people say, okay, it's either I strive or it's God striving and I'm totally passive. Both are together. In fact, uh, look at Colossians chapter 1 and uh, verse 29. <clears throat> Paul says, To this end I also labor, striving according to His working, which works in me mightily. See, both are true. God is working mightily in me, and I am striving mightily. Paul never advocates passivity. Rather, he advocates that we look to Christ continually as we labor and strive. It's Christ's resurrection that enabled Paul to say, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And that's my hope for every one of you this morning. So, let me summarize. First of all, we've seen Christ's resurrection um, gave a legal exchange of life uh, 2,000 years ago. And what an incredible... Incredible, incredible blessing that is because it guarantees our justification, the, our sins completely taken away, our adoption into His family, our security. We need to always be looking back to the security that we have there. Then point number two, we saw that there's an actual exchange life that is our sanctification. It's the transformed thinking, it's transformed dominion mandate that's received from the second Adam. And then point three speaks of an exchange that goes on on Judgment Day. Colossians 3, verse 4. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. The exchange life has to be true for all of eternity or we would never survive the righteous, holy uh, God coming into His presence. There's no way we could stand before Him. Second Thessalonians says this is what's going to happen when Christ comes back. He, is he will be revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God. That's His return in glory. So this is an incredibly amazing way for Paul to end this section here, is to say that we who deserved His judgment, we who are criminals in His sight, are being transformed by Christ into righteous judges. What an amazing concept that we who deserve judgment, we're going to be coming with Christ and bringing judgment to the earth. 1 Corinthians 6.2 says, Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And so every one of us, worthy of judgment, and yet we're going to be judges. Why? Because of Christ. Because of Christ. So do you see how Christ is all in all? <laughs> Amazing grace. How sweet the sound. He says in verse 3, You died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. I want to end just by reading uh, what's going to happen on Judgment Day in Matthew chapter 25. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the holy angels with Him, then He will sit on the throne of His glory. All the nations will be gathered before Him and He will separate them one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. And He will set the sheep on His right hand but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. See how closely he identifies with his people. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in or naked and clothe you? Or when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. Then he will also say to those on the left hand, Depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not take me in. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick, and in prison, and you did not visit me. 
Then they will also answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty, or a stranger or naked, or sick in prison, and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. And so the bottom line means seeking the resurrected life means seeking Jesus. And if you're an unbeliever this morning, it means you're still in the old world. You're still under the judgment of God and you will face the eternal judgment of God unless you are in Christ. And I urge you not to wait. Don't rest until you have embraced Jesus Christ in faith. He says, all who come to me, I will by no means cast out. Now, if you're a believer uh, and you cannot honestly say with Paul that you have experienced the exceeding greatness of His power within you. If you cannot say that you've experienced that, I urge you, lay claim to it by faith. And I'm going to help you to do that in just a, a moment. Study Second Peter chapter 1, which gives some of the hindrances to entering into that. In fact, Second Peter 1 says, many of us in the, in the body are nearsighted, we're barren, we're fruitless, uh, we don't have what we were ordained to have. And so I would urge you to study that. But don't live inconsistently like Marcus did. Some people present eternal life as pie in the sky by and by. Jesus Christ wants you to start slicing that pie and enjoying it right now. Okay? Are you with me? Amen? Okay, let's uh, pray. Actually, what I'm going to do as we pray, I've written a prayer that... I'm going to pray in the first tense. And if you feel that you're dry and unfruitful and have not been experiencing the beauty of God's life, I want you to pray this prayer with me to God and just say, Yes, Lord, these are my words. And by faith, I receive the infilling of your Spirit and by your Spirit, the infilling of Christ living His life through me. So let's pray this and, uh, and we'll close our service. Father, Your Word has promised that if we ask the Spirit, You will give of the Spirit far more readily than parents give the necessities of life to their children. I lay claim to the how much more of Luke 11, verse 13, and ask that You would give to me an extra portion of the Spirit's presence for today. I need the Spirit because You have commanded me to walk in the Spirit in everything that I do. Help me to sing in the Spirit, to worship in the Spirit, to rejoice in the Holy Spirit. Please help me to pray in the Spirit since I do not know what I should pray for as I ought. Help me to love in the Spirit, be led by the Spirit, be moved by the Spirit, be compelled by the Spirit, and to have my mind controlled by the Spirit. May every part of me be controlled by Your Spirit so that I might live in the Spirit. I want to be taught by the Holy Spirit, to speak by the Spirit, since no one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Wash and sanctify me by the Spirit. I know that Paul's prayer in Ephesians 1, 17 through 20 is according to your will. And I ask that the reality of your transforming power would work in my life today. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of Him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you might know what is the hope of His calling. What are the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints? And what is the exceeding greatness of His power toward us who believe? According to the working of His mighty power which He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places. I do not ask this because I deserve it, but because I am united to Christ and He has purchased everything that is necessary to my full enjoyment of the Spirit. I ask it simply because You have promised the Spirit to those who come in faith. Thank you for your gracious gift, Father. I love you and praise you. May the Spirit cause me to glorify you today. Lord Jesus, you are the vine and we are the branches. I acknowledge that my life flows from you and that without you I can do nothing. I know that you were given the Holy Spirit without measure. I ask that you would release your life into my life that I might bear fruit. Release your strength, wisdom, healing to meet the needs of this day. You have said that all who drink of you will never thirst since they will have within them. A fountain of living water that never grows dry. 
I need that for my dryness. I lay claim to your promise. In John 7, 37 through 39, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive. For the Holy Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Lord, since you have been glorified, and everything necessary has been done that we might receive the Spirit, I pray that the Holy Spirit would be poured out upon me today. This passage says that anyone who thirsts may come to drink and will receive. Lord, I come to you and I now drink of you. Thank you for your gift of the Spirit. Thank you for your life-giving waters. And Holy Spirit, I invite you now to baptize me afresh with the fire of your love. I want to know you, not just know about you. I want to experience your presence in my life. I give myself to you and ask that you would give yourself to me. I need your power in my life. Please come and fill me now. Come into my life as the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. I need those things in my life. I am your bondservant, and I come humbly to be controlled and moved by you. Whatever giftings you want to pour out in my life today, I gladly receive and determine now to use to the glory of the Father. I will not limit your gifts by my perceptions of what I can handle or what I need. I receive your sovereign will to give as you please. Work in me mightily to the glory of God. Fill me with your gracious fruit. Help me to walk in the Spirit that I might not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. I lay claim to your supernatural love that can love the unlovable. I lay claim to your joy of the Lord, which is my strength. I lay claim to your peace that passes all understanding, your long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Help me to do everything today by your working, that you would replace my evil thinking with the mind of Christ, my rebellious will with the will of Christ, my unruly emotions with the compassion of Christ. Flow through me to minister to others. Please flood the deepest places of my life, washing away the filth and replacing it with the righteousness of Christ. Cleanse my wounds that still tend to dominate my thoughts and are keeping me from emotional freedom. Help me to know Christ and the power of His resurrection. I want to learn more and more what it means to walk in the Spirit. May I not lift so much as a straw from the ground without Your presence, love, and approval. By faith, I thank You even now that You have answered this prayer and have poured out Your Spirit in my life. Praise be to Your name. Praise be to Your name. I love You and thank You. In the strong name of Jesus Christ. Amen.